Well, here we are in Luke chapter 11. And as I do each week, I want to invite you at the beginning portion of this sermon time, if there's any kinds of questions, reflections, things that stood out to you from this chapter that you want to share or ask, now's the chance. We had some amazing ones last week. I was like, man, boom. So, yeah, I'm going to. studying scripture and we look at characters who are encountering Jesus face to face there's times where we can kind of like shake our head and think how in the world do you not see right in a way kind of passing judgment on them for not seeing that God is standing in front of them with all the things that he's doing and saying and at the same time we could even like kind of flip it around and more so maybe in a healthier way use scripture as a mirror to our own soul which I really love the way you've described your own journey with having prepared to talk about Jonah and then seeing a resonance with the text here uh, whenever that happens to me I always sort of like perk up a little bit there's like a oh interesting I'm seeing a resonance across multiple things uh, maybe a story or a character or something and that usually is an indicator that I'm supposed to pay attention to that a little bit. <laughs> and so, sometimes it takes three or four times for the Lord to say it to me for me to get it. And then I'm like, okay, I got it, Lord. I'm working on that now. Um, and other times, not so much. But, that's a really great observation to look at the text in a way that we ask ourselves, what is this saying about me and what I need to do? And in this case, there's a pretty stern warning in that passage of, hey, these guys converted and turned around and Jonah's sermon was one sentence long. I mean, goodness gracious, if you're going to turn around with one sentence and you've got this guy out walking around performing miracles and preaching whole sermons, pay attention, listen up. You've got to at least honor or respect what's coming to you and not immediately reject it, right? Take some time to think about it. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, John. Um, I Uh-huh. 
That's a really good observation. And that, too, is another stern warning component of this chapter from Jesus. And he's directly confronting the Pharisees. And it's, a, it's an important... Um, this is an important text along, alongside a whole bunch of others where Jesus confronts Pharisees and other religious leaders. And what we need to see is that this is actually the most loving thing Jesus can do for them, is to seek the truth. And in some ways, sometimes it's very direct and like sounds to us kind of abrasive. Like, I, I tend to read passages like this, and some of the background in my mind is my, my uh, Minnesota Scandinavian roots, where you don't say anything abrasive to anyone ever. <laughs> like, you're extremely nice. There's a whole phrase that describes this character or culture trait from where I grew up called Minnesota nice, right? You beat around the bush as much as possible to tell someone something like this, right? So I, I often read things like this with Jesus, and I, I'm like, ooh, that was a little rough, wasn't it, Jesus? I mean, kind of, wow, that was really direct. And But they needed to hear that. They really needed that. And it was like the most loving thing he could do for them was show them, you look great on the outside. I love this verse you quoted. You have this clean-looking cup and dish. He's using this dinnerware as an example for them. It looks beautiful on the outside, but inside is greed and wickedness, right? And Jesus regularly calls out people who think they've got it all together, or maybe even are just putting on a mask for a facade like you're describing. And inside, it's all darkness and messy and, and lots of things going on that really need to be challenged. And he regularly says, that's the stuff I'm here to deal with. Is that stuff. You could have tattered clothes and look terrible and dirty and have a beautiful soul. And you could look wonderfully immaculate on the outside and have a terrible heart. Jesus calls that out and says that we've got to deal with this stuff because that's the most important part, is working from the inside out, getting down to the roots of who we are and our character and having God transform that. And it's, it's kind of no wonder that when Jesus goes off and has parties with those people that the Pharisees don't want him to have parties with, right? He's working on the people who are, like, there's no mask there. They know they've messed up. And Jesus is with them because he's teaching them and showing them love and compassion and grace. And it's the Pharisees who regularly are saying, how can you meet with them? Look at the way they look and how they act. And Jesus said, hey, the, the physician didn't come for the healthy." for the sick. 
And he came for you too. <laughs> and you're sick, but you don't know it. Sometimes you're ignoring the fact that you're sick. This is a really good observation, John. I really appreciate you bringing up that verse because it has loads to teach us about the point of why Jesus came. Right? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's that's I think at the heart of what Jesus is doing here. He he loves the Pharisees just as much as he loves everyone else. They need a different kind of medicine, <laughs> right? Because they act like they are already holy and they've already taken care of their stuff. But Jesus points out where that's totally not true in the injustice of how they treat other people, the language, like you were talking about, how they speak to other people, the way in which they've set themselves up on a pedestal and look down on other people. All that stuff needs to be called out so that they can heal from it. And then, you pointed out, this is also, I think, a really important observation, is that the 21st century church, people can be a Pharisee here, too. We can look a lot like them. We can act like we've got it all together, and we can mistreat people through our words. There's so many ways in which our character is revealed, even if we may look really good on the outside. Nice and clean cut and suit and tie and everything, and then there's all this other stuff going on inside that maybe nobody knows, or maybe people will eventually see, and it's our character. That's the most important thing. I think there's another passage, I forget which gospel this is in, but Jesus refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Looks great on the outside, super clean, super shiny, but inside you're full of death. That's pretty, pretty direct, right? <laughs> I think about, whoa, he just called me a grave. That's scary and sad. I really need to work on something if that's what he's calling me. But that's a really good observation, John. I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Pursuit of holiness, the Pharisees, 
It'll come back to me. I'll have to wait. David. Yeah, well, it's not on my notes here, but to respond to that, I mean, there was a project Venus. Yeah. Who kind of had started having questions about what, mm-hmm. you know, Pharisees were all thinking and everything. Yeah. And then it was, of course, he was a little afraid of what people might think about him, so he yeah. talked to Jesus at night. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> started asking questions. And stuff. Yeah. And because of that, we learned a little bit more about the kingdom of God. That's for my own stuff. Um, I mentioned before, maybe you might come to the other thing. Uh, what is written in chapter 11 can also be found in Matthew and Mark, just in different chronological order, mm-hmm. which also I mentioned that part of Luke is not necessarily in chronological order, and that Jesus could have repeated his sermons at different times. Mm-hmm. Jesus offered the Lord's Prayer the pattern for his disciples. Luke associates the teachings about prayer with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and does not include them with the Sermon on the Plain as Matthew includes it on the Sermon on the Mount. Luke contrasted trusting in material wealth for security with seeking the kingdom of God. True treasures are found in heaven on earth. Luke associates these teachings not with the Sermon but with his journey to Jerusalem. In traditional society, the protocols of hospitality are formal at every level of society, not just in the courts of state or diplomacy. A householder had the duty to receive guests and help them on their way. He also had the responsibility of protecting the society from interlopers or people who are not what they see. Mm-hmm. You see, because Jesus got invited to homes all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus' invitation, such as in this part of the Chapter 11, Jesus' invitation to dine with the Pharisee results in a wide-ranging series of curses directed against his opponents, the scribes, lawyers, Pharisees. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for being excessively concerned with trivial matters, such as ritual purity and hygiene, while failing to pursue important matters, such as social justice and ethical behavior. The lawyers also are denounced for sharing in perpetuation of injustice, but they are singled out for criticism for their father's part in killing the prophets. On this occasion, Jesus' opponents began laying a trap in order to accuse him of some crime. By knowing this, Luke anticipates Jesus' arrest, trials, and eventual crucifixion, which all the other Gospels do in different ways. Luke presents these sayings of Jesus as a single speech given while a guest in the house of the Pharisee. While for Luke, this event occurred during the journey to Jerusalem, Whereas Matthew shows Jesus giving these same sayings on several occasions, mm-hmm. on several occasions, in a different order and at times before and after the journey, but not during. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees who received nothing but condemnation, the disciples are both warned and reassured. Jesus reassured them of God's love and concern for them, but counseled them on the price of unbelief and the rewards of faith. Uh, the Pharisees were not the only ones concerned about ritual matters, just, just for information, biblical. The approved religion of Rome focused on performing rituals exactly as they were prescribed. If an error was made in the ritual, the Romans displayed their piety by starting all over from the beginning and continuing this way until everything was correct. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they felt that their religious service was ineffective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, sometimes when I come across things in the Bible that exist today but are slightly different, mm-hmm. uh, keys, it mentions keys. Mm-hmm. As for ancient keys, they were a piece of wood or metal that could be passed through a hole in a door 
and used to move a latch or a crossbar inside. Protection was provided by making the shape of the key complex. The Egyptians would put wooden pins in the crossbar that kept it from moving until the right key was used to push the pins in the right amount. The illustration of keys signified access to spiritual teachings. Mm. So I was just wondering what they thought about when Jesus says keys versus yeah. what we think about. That's a good Our keys are still are, come from original ideas. Yeah. That's a good observation. That's something I'll point out, and I remembered what I was going to say earlier, so I'm going to try to not forget it this time. The, the last thing you said there about keys is a really great... Um, when studying scripture and you come across something that is just like normal for everyday life now, it's really good to go to some commentaries and dictionaries and look at what was that like for them, because it could be very different. And there's, there is a component of some differences to like how you described Egyptian keys and stuff. But the concept is still the same. A tool used for opening a door, right? So there is a parallel, a cultural parallel between our culture and theirs. Uh, but sometimes there's not a parallel or there's something very different. Something that they would have assumed is normal for their culture that is like not assumed for us. And knowing that is really important for understanding the text for our, for our sake 21 centuries later. That's a really good study technique. Yes, John? Into obedience to God. 
That was their whole way of doing it. Like, look, I'm doing it better. I've got it right. Follow me. You're messed up. You're wrong. You're getting, you know, it was a clear use of shame as a tool to get people to be righteous. Right? Clearly not working. And Jesus comes in and offers what? Grace, forgiveness, mercy, embrace, and compassion. And people followed him in droves because it, it invited them to turn around from what they were doing that they did believe was wrong to this new thing that was good and healthy and whole and that was part of the kingdom God was beginning. It, it's wonderful to see the contrast and also convicting to realize that the church can do the same thing. We could use shame as a tool to help people go the right direction. But that's not what Jesus does. He only uses, I wouldn't say Jesus uses shame, but he calls people out who use shame. And what he does is gives people these beautiful invitations. He's very gentle in his invitation for people to follow him and turn the other way. This is really good. You got some really good observations on Luke chapter 11. I really appreciate all your sharing. I want to uh, go into just walking through what we see in this chapter and then leading into some application for us. The first is the Lord's Prayer is included in Luke 11, but it's different than Matthew's version, right? It's a little more succinct, kind of slightly shorter. Um, and so some people wonder, like, well, which one do I use? Right? I've got the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, which is the one most people use. Lord's Prayer in Luke. Is there, a diff- is there like a reason why they're different, and is it problematic? I don't think so, for one, because pretty much everything you see in the Luke version is in the Matthew version. Matthew's just got sort of like the expanded version, right, of the Lord's Prayer. But in both cases, you're getting a um, witness's account of how Jesus taught his followers to pray. And so it is really important, and it can be really good to lay them next to each other and, and see how they're different. Likely the reason Matthew's got used more was because it was slightly longer and uh, incorporated a little bit more. There's another passage following that where in Luke 11, uh, Jesus talks about asking, seeking, and knocking, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Many people have taken that passage and ripped it out of Luke and said, oh, okay, so we just ask and we get, right? As if it's like a, as if God's like a cosmic vending machine or something. You just put in the quarters, get the thing, Right? Obviously, that's been distorted and used in what we call prosperity theology, prosperity gospel. The idea that God wants you to have a million dollar home, two billion dollars in your bank account, whatever, right? It's just lavish, extravagant wealth, as if that's the end goal of faith. It's strange because that you could take this passage, rip it out, and say that's true, but if you follow the story to the end, How does the second person of the Trinity's life end? On a cross, in poverty. He doesn't get a mansion. Not on this earth, anyway. But you know what I mean. He's not getting prosperity in the sense that those people will teach you prosperity comes. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what does this mean then? When we say, when Jesus says, ask and you will be given, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open, what do we mean by that? If we take it within the whole context of Jesus' life and teaching, we see the more important piece we've been talking about earlier about our hearts, and if our hearts are aligned with the will and purpose of God, then what we're asking for will be aligned with the purpose and plans of God. Because our hearts align with God, right? So you could ask for something 
and pray for something, seek something, and find that thing and receive that thing because you're already in alignment with the Holy Spirit. Right? And even then, sometimes, you know, we know we've talked about this before, the experience of praying adequately for something that probably is in alignment with God, for healing for someone, or for restoration of a relationship, or all of that, and maybe it doesn't happen. And that's a mystery and a tough place to live in. But I wanted to make sure that we know when, when Jesus is saying this ask, seek, knock metaphor, it's not about getting what we want so that we get to just have whatever we want. If we're aligned with Jesus and his kingdom, that's where the heart of the matter is in the asking and the seeking and the knocking. This passage also, or chapter, goes on to talk about evil spirits. And there's a portion in here where the people are wondering about Jesus. Is he actually a servant of the evil spirits because he's casting them out? I think it's kind of interesting how Jesus responds with basic logic. He just says, well, that doesn't make any sense because if I'm casting out evil spirits with an evil spirit, then they're all fighting each other, right? But a house divided won't stand. They're all on the same side. Right? And then he puts it back on them too to say, well, if I'm casting them out by evil spirits, how do your other exorcists do it? Right? It's just basic logic. But it really confounds them and it kind of challenges them to think critically for a moment and realize, oh yeah, I guess that's a problem. I can't say you cast out evil spirits by evil spirits because then the evil spirits are all at war with one another. You must be casting them out from a good place from a place of healing and restoration, uh, which is an important component. Then the passage goes on to talk about blessedness. Jesus talks about those who hear and follow God are blessed. There's a component of signs and wonders, and this whole this, uh, portion on Jonah. Jonah is one of my absolute favorite characters of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful four-chapter-long four story. Um, and there's so much beautiful stuff that happens in the uh, story of Jonah that eventually finds its way into the New Testament. When Peter has his vision of that sheet in the book of Acts, he's sitting on a roof in the town of Joppa, which is the place where Jonah got on a boat to go the, other, the wrong direction, right? And Jonah was called to go to people who were not Jewish. Nineveh, Nineveh right? Well, Peter is given a vision that's about going to Gentiles. And in a way, you could say that Peter gets to kind of redeem Jonah's story by going with God's vision toward people who are not Jewish to tell them about Jesus. Right? It's a really powerful parallel there. Jesus says there's a sign. The one sign he'll give to the people who ask for signs and wonders is the sign of Jonah. And in his um, metaphorical way of describing the sign, he's saying basically it's about me going into the grave for three days and then coming back, just like Jonah went into a whale and came back. That's the sign that people will get if they're looking for signs and wonders. Jesus talks about light and darkness. And this happens in verses 33 through 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar, but on a lampstand, so where those who enter may see by the light. Verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be full of light as when a lamp gives you light with its rays. 
This is back to the heart of the matter we were talking about earlier, that what Jesus is bringing to us is transformation of our soul and our character and our heart, and that out of that transformation interior, the exterior will be visible, will bring light to others. So that's a whole other sermon right there talking about what does it mean to be transformed in here so that outside does what it's called to, it aligns with the transformation inside. Then there's the debate with the Pharisees and the lawyers that happens for the remaining of, uh, remaining part of the chapter, verses 37 all the way to the end. We talked about the cup and the dish and the cleanness on the outside, but the uh, wickedness and greed on the inside. Oh, and look at this. I highlighted it. Verse 43. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. <laughs> That's another one of Jesus' very direct passages of confrontation with the teachers of the law. And then the chapter ends by saying, When he went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They have the sense that they need to control Jesus. Because right now he's saying a lot of things that make them look bad. Right? And also saying a lot of things that probably don't feel good but are convicting and true. And they need to receive but they're, not, they're unwilling to receive that. And that's one way we can react when we hear truth, is by reacting rather than responding. We can react with anger and bitterness and defensiveness. But Jesus invites us to respond with humility and openness to truth. And so we do. So this chapter has a lot of big ideas. We've talked about prayer, the idea of the prosperity gospel. That's not the goal. The goal is faithfulness. There is the concept and the reality of evil spirits in the world. Uh, demons exist. There is evil in the world in, a spiritual, in the spiritual sense. And what, what I often tell people about this whenever I teach on it is to remember that Satan is not behind every bush. So not every bad thing that happens in the world has a demonic start. We have agency too. Right? We're spiritual beings. We can make good and bad choices. So some things that happen in the world that are bad and evil, they have a human origin. We made a bad choice, and we need to own that. And we can make collective bad choices, right? Like whole cultures, systems, and countries can make choices that go a certain direction that are not right not, and that are evil. So what's needed is discernment, right? To know what is the origin of something that may be evil or wrong. And God gives us that too. Just like when the book of James says that we ask for wisdom, God will give it freely. Discernment is part of wisdom. We can ask God to give us discernment to know what is and what is not something of demonic origin. And then, this part about signs and wonders, what I think is really important, is Jesus basically says, it's not about the signs and wonders. Like, I've, I've done a lot of them, basically. But if you're really looking for those and not really looking for God, then I have very little to give you. Because I want you to find God. And you don't need signs and wonders to find God. Those are the fireworks. But ultimately Jesus is inviting people to follow and find God through all the activity of God around. And then lastly, this component of the spirit of the Pharisee. This is a huge one because I think it's a really easy temptation as we continue the journey of faith, following Jesus ourselves, we can find ourselves in places where we're judging other people, whether they're not further, not as far down the road as we are, 
or they have a different struggle than we do, and so we can judge them for that. And Jesus calls that out in the Pharisees. He calls out their gracelessness, their unforgiveness, their mercilessness, their injustice, their nitpicking about tithing rather than talking about the, the needs of human beings. Right? He calls all that out. That all of that you can kind of put under this umbrella of what we call the spirit of a Pharisee. And how do you combat having a spirit of a Pharisee? Well, they're not very humble people. <laughs> Humility is how you combat things, having that spirit of a Pharisee. You say, Lord, give me a soft heart. Let, don't let me go down the trail in my mind of judging someone else whose sin is different than mine. Don't let me go down the road of condemning someone who you made, who's in your image, even though they may have done something terrible. Take my heart, make it soft, so that I can follow you as you lead, to love people like you love them, and not lean into things that are lesser than the most important thing. So the Pharisees, like we said earlier, nitpicking about how to like shred the tent of their, their spices to tie to the temple and condemning other people who don't think about it that way, neglecting the issues of justice and care and concern for other people. They don't do those things. And so Jesus calls them out and says, this is what I'm looking for, a soft heart, people who are willing to listen and follow. So I have three very simple invitations for you from Luke 11 that I want you to consider. The first one is, and this one may be new to you, even though you're familiar with it, is to take time each day this week and pray the Lord's Prayer. You can choose the Matthew version or the Luke version. Uh, The Matthew one is the one most people use. But just take a moment every morning and have it written down, type it out, or open to the text in Matthew chapter 6, and just pray that prayer once a day. The second invitation is to genuinely ask, seek, and knock. And I'm going to tell you what I think you should ask, seek, and knock for. God's heart. Ask for God's heart. For your heart to look like God's heart. Seek God's heart. Knock on the door of God's heart. Whatever that looks like for you. Ask, seek, and knock, but specifically for God's heart in your heart. And thirdly, the final invitation is to practice confession with someone. A trusted friend, spouse, uh, partner, or brother or sister in Christ, someone who you can go to and say, I would like to confess this, this, and this. I need to get these out of me. I need to speak them out. Because when we bring what's inside into the light by confessing it, God can heal it. Now we do that, we can ask forgiveness directly from God, and we will receive that directly from God. There's something powerful that happens on the parallel, the horizontal plane of doing it with each other. We now experience something that is transformative, accountability, right? Someone can then check in with us and say, how's it going with that? Not to condemn us, but just to be with us on the journey of healing from whatever it is we need to confess. So Lord's Prayer, ask, seek, and knock for God's heart, and confession. As we close, I want to invite you to join me in a brief prayer to pray, and then we'll uh, spend some time in fellowship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this chapter in Luke, for all the wealth of things it teaches us about who you are and your heart. 
it's very practical. There's so many things in here for us to chew on about our own discipleship and how to follow Jesus. So we pray for wisdom. Open our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our bodies to receive the truth of this chapter. Draw our eyes to whatever it is that we need to see today. Through these invitations and practices, I pray, Lord, that people would hear what they need to hear. If they're praying the Lord's Prayer, if they're seeking your heart, if they're confessing, I pray that they would hear what they need to hear from you this week. And then act accordingly. Obey, follow, trust you. We thank you for this time we've been able to spend together in worship and in study. Bless us as we spend time in fellowship. And bless us throughout this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, enjoy some fellowship. Hang out and chat.